0: Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part 2, of this presentation. There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Elvis Presley Manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Now let's return to our story about Colonel Tom Parker. Elvis Presley returned to the United States with an increased appetite for amphetamines, allegedly developed when he attempted to relieve the boredom of military service. But both he, friends, and acquaintances would have encountered such pharmaceuticals while Elvis was on tour, practically a staple during the grueling days of performing rock and roll in the 50s. While in Germany... Presley also met Priscilla Bollier, a 14 year old daughter of an Air Force officer stationed in Wiesbaden, Germany. Because of her youth, her relationship with Presley was extremely restrained until 1962, although her ability to then visit Elvis and ultimately live at Graceland while Priscilla attended a local Catholic high school was conditional upon an agreement that the couple eventually marry. After a few charity performances, Tom Parker began to shift Elvis's career into a combination of film appearances that served to promote record sales. In fact, after 1961, Presley would not perform for a live audience for seven years. Initially, Elvis himself believed that he could become a credible actor, and his initial films showed some promise and were perceived seriously by critics, with contributions ranging from some prominent industry individuals that range from Don Siegel to Michael Curtis to Clifford Odets. Originally interested in merely performing in film as a dramatic actor, Elvis was overruled by the Colonel, with producer Hal Wallace stuck to a formula, which included the obligatory half-dozen songs, eventually packaged into a soundtrack album. The colonel also resisted any attempts to upgrade the quality of material and even admitted that he couldn't tell a good script from a bad script or even a good performance from a bad one. The promise of early efforts like Jailhouse Rock and King Creole were eventually replaced by fluff like Clambake and Harem Scarum. Reviewers now dismissing Presley's acting career as not serious. None of this bothered either the colonel or the studios, producer Hal Wallace once famously stating, quote, that the only sure thing in Hollywood is an Elvis Presley movie, unquote. Shot with pared-down budgets with a guaranteed box office, Elvis films became a cash cow that unfortunately completely limited Presley's career. With the colonel signing Presley up for three pictures annually, this altered Elvis' lifestyle, requiring the performer to live in the Los Angeles area for much of the year, a situation he disliked. He frequently fled L.A. whenever possible, taking his entourage with him to Las Vegas, a habitat that only encouraged an insulated, nocturnal lifestyle. He also began to tire of the drudgery of churning out increasingly more vapid films that were derided by the media Privately, he began to criticize the colonel as he became less and less popular, especially with the onset of the Beatles and other music styles that rendered him as square and archaic. The colonel himself also began to spend more time in places like Palm Springs and Las Vegas, always secretive about his health. In the mid-60s, Parker, who weighed over 300 pounds, would suffer his third heart attack, a debilitating occurrence that transformed him into an old man began to live every day like it was his last. This greatly exacerbated his gambling addiction, especially to craps and roulette, and most likely influenced his poor business decisions concerning Elvis' career. More and more, movie studios and RCA were asked for money up front, or even occasionally to actually cover the cost of gambling losses. Because some of the Memphis Mafia, especially Joe Esposito, were conduits to the colonel, He was fully aware of Presley's restlessness and anger over his stalled career. He also was mindful that at some point Elvis' public might completely tire of the formulaic nonsense that was now the mainstay of Elvis' income stream. He began discussions with NBC for a television special live performance that would be billed as Presley's comeback as an entertainer. A difficult and relentless negotiator, Parker took two years to hammer out a deal $250,000 for the special, $850,000 for a separate film, the colonel also mindful that the studios were no longer willing to pay Elvis' his standard $1 million fee. This film, called Change of Habit, also starred Mary Tyler Moore as one of three nuns in the inner city and Ed Asner one year before Tyler Moore's breakout television show. It was just as well that the Colonel decided to move Elvis back into live performances, as the desultory change of habit was the last dramatic film release of Presley's career. But by the time of its release, Elvis was already riding the wave of a successful reemergence. Initially conceived as a Christmas special by Tom Parker, both Elvis and the show's creative team of Steve Binder and Bones Howe agreed that they wanted a more stripped-down return to Elvis' musical roots and were able to convince Parker to generally accept moving away from Elvis' singing Christmas carols, most likely because that was something Presley wanted no part of. Once they got that general agreement, Elvis made the creative decisions on his own, with a great deal of input from Binder, whose perspective Presley respected. The resulting special, with a tanned, refreshed Elvis in an especially remarkable leather outfit, among other wardrobes, performing an extended medley of some of his most popular or distinctive hits, was the highest-rated television show of the year, the program also a critical hit. There was even a Christmas Carol for the Colonel to release. No longer bound to sell the warmed-over soundtracks from his films, Elvis then went back into the studio looking for new and different material. Told repeatedly by Tom Parker to ignore the trend towards songs with a contemporary social message, Presley followed his own instincts in picking music from a songwriter who had written material used in his films. When RCA asked Mac Davis to provide a demo tape of anything he thought appropriate for an upcoming Elvis Memphis January 1969 recording session, he responded with 19 different songs. The first song on the reel was entitled In the Ghetto, a sad ballad about the cycle of urban poverty and violence. Although both Tom Parker and RCA thought releasing such material would be a disaster, Presley's dramatic rendition, released in April 1969, became his first top ten hit in four years. Although left off of the album, From Elvis in Memphis, in August of 1969, another Presley single, Suspicious Minds, an iconic song, became his last number one hit. Insisting to the colonel that he wanted to return to live performances, Parker negotiated a deal with Kirk Kikorian's International Hotel for four weeks, two shows a night, Mondays off in the hotel's 2,000-seat auditorium. Beginning in July 1969, Elvis was paid $100,000 a week, the highest performance fee in Vegas history, and the second performer to appear at the brand-new venue. The colonel shrewdly letting Barbara Streisand appear first, assuring that any sound, lighting, or production issues would be remedied by the time Elvis began his stint. Presley was back, even appearing on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine in July of 1969. Although Tom Parker's promotion of Elvis's appearance throughout Las Vegas and all of the way to California generated sellout crowds and high-profile buzz, His constant presence in the casino had the predictable effect of prompting Parker to ramp up his gambling habit to new heights. And he continued to exert tremendous personal control over especially access to Elvis Presley. One of the many prospective concert attendees was Steve Binder, who tried on many occasions to call Elvis' private number, which Presley encouraged after their NBC special. Elvis was wildly ecstatic about working in the future with Binder, and Presley even stood up to Tom Parker over creative issues for the first time in years. But none of Binder's calls were ever returned. When he tried to get backstage at the International, he was summarily excluded from the guest list. Members of the entourage ensuring on Parker's orders, no doubt, that he was barred. Despite the initial high fee negotiated by Parker, the colonel then made the mistake of signing a five-year extension at $125,000 per week, without noting both the hotel's profit margins during Elvis's sellouts and the concurrent casino drop that always doubled during Elvis's performances. Why did he make such a bad deal? Because it guaranteed that Parker would get all kinds of casino freebies and perks that the hotel gladly provided— a salve to the huge amounts undoubtedly the colonel was losing at the tables. Things like a giant freezer stocked with gourmet food at his Palm Springs home, on the casino's dime, free sweets and sign-off privileges while at the hotel, even when Elvis wasn't performing, free trips to Hawaii for the entourage, and the highest roller status losing as much as fifty to $100,000 a night. But Elvis was so profitable that Parker was allowed to gamble essentially on credit, his marker reduced on the rare occasion when he actually won. After several engagements in Las Vegas, Parker quickly put together stadium tours throughout the U.S., starting with the Astrodome, playing such arena venues as the Oakland Coliseum, the Spectrum, and the Boston Garden, but always deliberately returning to Vegas and the International. But this newfound live performance outlet prompted both Elvis and his now wife Priscilla to want to tour internationally, especially in Europe. Offers from around the world were perpetual and remarkably lucrative, especially from interests in places like Saudi Arabia, where legitimate offers of as much as $10 million were commonplace. As always, the colonel hemmed and hawed, but always came up with some usually weak reason as to why this couldn't or shouldn't be done. To Elvis and others, he would usually stall or talk about security or alienating fans if some country was left out of a tour. Any excuse that, if analyzed, was ridiculous based on the amount of money involved. It was clear that for some mysterious reason, Elvis would never perform internationally. One eyewitness recounted an exchange when two South American promoters approached Parker with an offer of $2.5 million for one show. The colonel barely reacted, saying only, Whenever I need $2.5 million, I'll call you. That Parker had finally constructed his perfect Vegas habitat of unlimited gambling, high-roller treatment, and utterly servile 24-7, 365 attention was to his liking, but his only client began to appreciably suffer. Despite his resurgence, Elvis Presley's spending habits, large payroll, and maintenance of both Graceland and a succession of households in Bel Air and Beverly Hills necessitated a great deal of cash. While his live shows were lucrative, they entailed transportation, eventually aboard a Convair eight eighty four engine jet named the Lisa Marie after his only daughter, which transported a large entourage of security and band members to most shows. Elvis's money woes only got worse when he separated from Priscilla five years after getting married and four years after the birth of his daughter. Initially willing to settle for less, Priscilla eventually renegotiated the terms of the divorce, receiving $725,000 in a lump sum an eventual $6,000 a month for 10 years and $4,000 a month in child support. With Elvis having no need for an L.A. base, his final Los Angeles home was sold in 1975 for $625,000 to Telly Sabalas. Priscilla also got half of that. The need for even more cash precipitated another dreadful decision that both the colonel and Elvis initially resisted. With an understanding of their long-term potential value, RCA Records repeatedly approached the colonel, asking about a lump sum buyout of Elvis' future royalties on record sales. This was not publishing or performance rights, but the money per record sold. The offer encompassed all Elvis music recorded before 1973, and would be in perpetuity. The first lump sum offer was for $3 million, but was rejected. RCA then kept upping the ante. When they got to $5.4 million, Parker and Elvis accepted the deal. The colonel then demanded a renegotiation of his own deal with Elvis, demanding that all non-touring revenue be split 50-50. On live performance revenue, Elvis got a 66-33 split. But there were other deals involving music publishing companies and merchandising in which Elvis received less than 50%. And back in the 50s, when Elvis was able to elbow his way into writing credits on some of his biggest hits, the colonel told him not to sign up with either BMI or ASCAP, as Parker disliked written agreements with organizations involved in processes he didn't understand. Although this was eventually remedied, it did not occur until after Elvis was dead, effectively costing the performer another obvious and significant revenue stream. In 1973, the colonel did negotiate a seven-year contract extension with RCA, but somehow, of the $10.5 million paid up front, the colonel got $6 million, Elvis $4.5 million. The colonel was also paid a higher royalty rate per record sold, with Elvis's royalty far below what someone of his industry stature, like Elton John or Led Zeppelin, were paid. Elvis was oblivious to much of this detail having entered a period of serious narcotic abuse and depression. The colonel, understanding that the lack of international touring was a major irritant for Elvis, then devised an ingenious plan to circumvent his personal abhorrence of such a tour. He made a deal with various television networks all over the world for Elvis to appear in a live format for live international satellite transmission to countries including Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, South Vietnam, the Philippines, and Australia. Because the Super Bowl would take place on the same day, January 14, 1973, and because special attention and additional material was to be supplied for the version shown in the United States, the American edition of the show appeared on April 4th. Elvis became excited about this novel showcase, lost 25 pounds in the month leading up to the show, and also cut way back on his pharmaceutical consumption, evident when he hit the stage in a specially designed American Eagle jumpsuit in Hawaii. This preparation helping to produce an iconic appearance. The show, entitled Elvis Aloha from Hawaii, was again NBC's highest-rated program of the year, and the subsequent release of a live double album sold a half a million copies in two weeks, startling numbers in the age of vinyl. But this was the final hurrah in a career now at a pivotal crossroads, Linda Thompson, the Tennessee beauty queen that became Elvis's official girlfriend after his marriage dissolved, hoped that Presley's ability to get himself into some semblance of normal, sober shape might be a permanent transition. But only hours after the concert ended in the early morning, Presley was again so narcotically intoxicated that he could not even get off of his Honolulu hotel room balcony to accompany his entourage to the USS Arizona Memorial. Thompson herself would personally witness Presley's final harrowing descent at bizarre behavior that transformed him into a tragic monstrosity. His consumption of narcotics now began to routinely include the injection of Dilaudid, a synthetic morphine administered into his hip. With financial necessity having forced Kirk Kokorian to sell the International to the Hilton Hotel Corporation, Presley spent his time at what was now the Las Vegas Hilton isolated in his hotel suite, never coming out in daylight hours and avoiding Colonel Parker, who he rarely spoke to. Parker spending most of his time at the gaming tables, running up a debt that eventually reached $30 million. Stories of Presley spontaneously shooting out television sets and streetlights were absolutely true. The paranoid singer, usually armed with several handguns, once coming within inches of accidentally shooting Linda Thompson while she was using the bathroom. Presley's dysfunctional relationship with his manager bubbled over predictably after an incident that had all of the bizarre trappings of Elvis in his final years. Having spent a great deal of time at the Las Vegas Hilton, Presley was quite close to the casino maitre d', who routinely served him dinner in his suite. Elvis was getting so delusional that he believed that he had the power to cure any ailment, and when heard that the Maitre D's wife had cancer, he immediately rounded up his entourage and headed to the Maitre D's house and went through a ritualized process intent on healing her. Unfortunately, hotel management had a policy against fraternization with guests, especially in this case, and the Maitre D was quickly fired. When Elvis found out he was so angry, he lambasted Hilton management on stage, singling out Baron Hilton personally. I think you people ought to know that the big shots at the Hilton are an unfeeling, uncaring group. They're rotten. A man's wife was dying of cancer, and just because I went out there to try and help her, they fired him. Baron Hilton's behind this. He's not worth a damn. After the show, Parker confronted Presley, And uncharacteristically, Elvis basically told him that if he didn't like it, he was fired. This argument escalated to the point where Parker played what was a trump card that he had probably always kept in reserve for just such a moment. He told Elvis that he could fire him if he wanted to, but that Presley would have to pay him what Parker was owed and that he would submit his bill in a few days. The colonel was smart enough to ultimately submit this demand through the unsophisticated Vernon Presley technically Elvis's business manager. Parker wanted $2 million before he would agree to relinquish his contract. Instead of contacting any number of entertainment industry management professionals who would have jumped at the chance to manage Elvis Presley and either backed down Parker with litigation or even just paid him to go away, the naive Presleys caved in. After a long discussion with his father, Presley told a member of his entourage, I guess we're going to have to make up with the old bastard. That was the last time Elvis even considered firing Tom Parker, believing that he would have to come up with a large sum of money to escape from this arrangement. He decided that, moving forward, he would just have to tolerate the colonel. However, from then on, he communicated only through intermediaries, avoiding any direct interaction. Subsequently, Elvis's drug consumption and eating habits deteriorated to the extent that Linda Thompson... Would had once eagerly discussed marriage with Presley, reluctantly walked away from the relationship in December of 1976, unable to personally witness what she felt to be an inevitable end. Tom Parker's only response to Elvis’s deteriorating condition and obvious drug usage was in 1974 to form a corporation focused strictly on Elvis-related merchandise and souvenirs. This entity known as Boxcar Productions had an ownership of 40% to Parker, 15% to Presley, and the other 45% to various pals of Parker, including Freddie Beanstock. Instead of helping his client healthwise, It appears that Parker was preparing for the day when Elvis could no longer perform, and inanimate objects would be the only way to make money off of his client. By August of 1977, Elvis Presley, six feet tall, weighed 350 pounds, 175 pounds more than what he weighed only four and a half years earlier during his Aloha from Hawaii concert. His heart was three times its normal size, and his nervous system routinely contained as many as 12 separate types of mostly narcotic medication, including several types of opiates. His remarkable tolerance of these medications was the product of massive abuse that stretched back over two decades. It was completely predictable that he collapsed and died at his home on August 17, 1977, aged 42 from what was officially listed as cardiac arrest, but what was more than likely polypharmacy. Following the circus-like funeral and public outpouring of grief after Elvis Presley's death, life went on normally for Colonel Parker and Presley's immediate family. A year later, a convention was held at the Las Vegas Hilton, organized by Tom Parker, that included a dedication of a statue of Elvis at the lobby. Separate admission to an Elvis recreation for a $15 additional charge. Appearances by Priscilla and Vernon Presley. And the colonel signing an autographed poem for a buck a throw. Over a million dollars came in in 1978 for merchandise profits at least half paid to Parker. The Colonel Parker gravy train seemed to be moving forward smoothly until a final and permanent obstacle appeared on the tracks. On June 26, 1979, Vernon Presley died. Although Elvis left his entire estate in trust to his daughter, Lisa Marie, she could not take control of the assets until she reached the age of 25. As executor, Vernon could make business decisions concerning the estate, including naming a successor trustee, which he did. Reluctantly, he eventually named Priscilla Presley as the successor trustee, a responsibility she assumed upon Vernon's death. He also named several other individuals who were CPAs or attorneys who had worked with Vernon over the years. When Tom Parker asked Priscilla to renew the management agreement that he had with Vernon, the co-trustees, as required, in May of 1980, submitted a petition to the probate court of Memphis's Shelby County. This typically rubber-stamped request had major consequences. The judge in the case, Joseph Evans, took one look at the arrangement and immediately realized that it most likely was inappropriate. An artist manager had collected in fees typically 50% of his client's income during the artist's lifetime and would continue to do so, even though he essentially had no artist to even manage. How was that appropriate? To answer that question, Evans appointed a local attorney, Blanchard Toole, to examine the propriety of both past and current Presley financial agreements with Parker, and to safeguard the interests of 12-year-old Lisa Marie Presley as the miner's guardian ad litem, legally defined as an appointed individual in a specific legal affair, in this case, the estate's relationship with Colonel Parker. Tool's 300-page filing in September of 1980 brought a screeching halt to over 25 years of one of the most appallingly exploitative excesses in the history of the entertainment industry. He suggested that all management agreements with Parker terminated with the death of Elvis Presley, that the 50% commission was inappropriate and excessive, and that any future earnings be paid directly to the executors and not to Parker. Tool's final and most damning assertion was that Parker had been and was guilty of self-dealing and had violated both his obligation to Elvis and to the estate. Tool also noted the executor's failure to provide Parker with specific written direction and reviews of relevant revenue statements to determine either their accuracy or legitimacy. He also demanded Parker's tax returns and a full audit of all relevant RCA documentation, as well as all of the other business entities who dealt with Elvis, including William Morris and any movie studio that worked with Elvis. Not surprisingly, the executors legally attempted to stop the investigation and to get Toole removed from the case. They failed. Toole's second filing in July of 1981 was even more confrontational. It contained allegations detailing the disastrous RCA catalog sale and enumerated gambling losses as the main motivator behind this and the low fees charged to the Vegas casinos in which Presley performed and also cited the lack of an arrangement with either BMI or ASCAP as sheer incompetence. Additionally, Parker's relationship with RCA was described as a conflict of interest, conspiracy, and a fraud in which the record company cheated Elvis and made side deals with Parker to help them get away with it. The judge in the case was equally as outraged, writing in his opinion that Parker's compensation was excessive and shocked the conscience of the court. He compelled the executors to file suit against Parker, ordered an investigation into the conduct of RCA records, and prohibited the executors to enter into any future agreements with the colonel without the judge's specific permission. The executors did file suit, but ultimately understanding that the colonel's health was poor and his death could complicate the matter even further. The case was quickly settled, the colonel astonishingly getting $2 additional dollars paid for by RCA. He was prohibited from receiving any future share of estate income and prohibited from earning anything related to Elvis for five years. Although Parker was now perceived especially by the entertainment industry as an unethical chiseler, his reputation was to take another hit with the 1981 release of the blockbuster biography of Elvis by Albert Goldman, who collaborated with Lamar Fike to not only paint a sensationally negative portrait of Presley, but to unearth the truth behind the origins and identity of Colonel Tom Parker. Parker's identity was known to his own family and had been since the early 60s. In 1960, his sister Nell was stunned to see a picture published in a Dutch periodical of Parker standing next to Elvis. She and the rest of her family believed that he was in fact Andreas von Koyck, and several wrote to him attempting to reestablish contact All of these attempts were ignored until Tom Parker abruptly invited his brother Adam to visit him in America in April of 1961. His younger brother arrived in L.A., spent a week with the colonel, met Elvis personally, but Parker refused to be photographed with his relative. His intent seemed to be to determine if his brother or anyone else in his family was intent on extorting money from him over either his immigration status or some other aspect of his Dutch background. This was the initial topic they discussed upon Adam's arrival, and Parker talked of very little of importance for the rest of the week. After his brother's return to the Netherlands, Parker never spoke or met with any member of his family again, despite additional requests, including one from a terminally ill sister, to say goodbye before she died. While researching his book, Albert Goldman came across the journalism of Dirk Valenga, a Breda-based reporter who had written about Tom Parker's origins. Although it was not common knowledge, there was some awareness in Dutch media that Parker was from the Netherlands. As Valenga wrote about this, he began to receive anonymous tips, not only about Parker's identity, but also about the murder of Anna Vandenbach. Goldman's book was a sensation, and his revelation about Tom Parker's citizenship was quite shocking, especially as it revealed the fundamental reason why Elvis never toured internationally. Such utterly self-centered, destructive, and limiting duplicity further cast him as the villain in the Elvis Presley story, more evidence that he was never more than a glorified carnival huckster. With his only client deceased, and with Parker unable to even market anything related to Elvis, any value he had as a creative consultant was gone. The Hilton Corporation began to slowly pare down his in-house perks, booting him from his luxury suite, cutting off his signing privileges and table credit, only allowing him markers at the slot machines. Some accounts had him working off his $30 million debt, but those rumors remain unsubstantiated. His wife remained closeted in their Palm Springs house, a veritable invalid for many years before her death in 1986. While Parker descended into show business irrelevance, the Presley Estate and Elvis Presley Enterprises enjoyed a remarkable turnaround spearheaded by the decision in 1981 to refurbish Graceland and open it to the public. Facing bankruptcy shortly after Elvis' death, with assets totaling only $5 million and the IRS demanding $15 million in back taxes, it seemed possible that Graceland might be sold. Instead, it became a cash cow, generating $10 million a year in admission fees, the second most visited residence in the United States after the White House. EP Enterprises also pioneered the practice of marketing the use of a deceased celebrity's likeness aggressively litigating against any illicit or unlicensed implementation. The organization also will not license any footage or photographs of Elvis in later, heavier years. At age 25, Lisa Marie Presley assumed control of her inheritance. Unfortunately, she seemed to have also inherited two self-destructive traits from her father— most likely due to profligate spending and debt. She eventually sold 85% of much of her inherited interests in Elvis Presley's posthumous income streams for $100 million. She eventually sued the investment manager hired to oversee her newly acquired cash, asserting that he had depleted the entire amount. Much more ominously, Lisa Marie battled major opiate addiction for much of her life, dying on January 12, 2023, aged 54. Her official net worth at the time of her death was a negative $10 million. Her mother, for many years the official trustee of her estate, was allegedly replaced by a recent amendment naming Lisa Marie's eldest daughter Riley as the trustee. An amendment Priscilla is now fighting in court. Both the disposition of Lisa Marie's trust and estate and her official cause of death are still pending. Although she sold many of her father's assets, Lisa Marie's estate still owns Graceland itself. Colonel Tom Parker lived out his last years arranging the occasional Elvis convention at the Las Vegas Hilton and living in a nearby high-rise apartment on a golf course after the hotel kicked him out, usually vigorously avoiding any media or interviews. He eventually married a secretary and longtime rumored companion, Luann Miller, although caretaker was probably more appropriate. They spent much of their time in casinos, Luann reading a book, while the colonel poured coins into a slot machine, frequently needing the help of an attendant to keep four machines going at once. His second wife attempted to limit his gambling losses, but wasn't particularly successful when he died of a stroke in their apartment on January 20, 1997, aged 87, His estate was worth about $900,000 after the colonel earned $100 million from Elvis Presley alone, approximately $360 million in 2023 dollars. Since he barely paid for even the most mundane household expenses, it is believed that most of his fortune was lost gambling in Las Vegas casinos. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Colonel Tom Parker. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Colonel by Alana Nash, Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley by Peter Goralnik, and Elvis Aaron Presley, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia by Alana Nash. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.